Welcome to today's edition of Feet to the Fire, where we're always challenging the status quo. For more cutting-edge commentary, go to feettothefire.org. That is feet, the number two, thefire.org. And now your host. Let's get started. Uh, Here we are. Welcome to Ephesians, Lesson 9, Chapter 5. Let's bow in a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for this time. We thank you for the preaching of your word, uh, for the purpose of the the church to preach your word and your gospel, for the salvation and the making of disciples. Uh, Thank you for Sule's message this morning and its potency. Praise the Lord for that. Guide all the Sunday schools now. Speak through me. Give us word and insight, uh, wisdom and insight into your word as we learn from it today for our edification and your glory. We love you and we pray. Amen. Amen. So, uh, Sule, obviously, we have first service uh, preached a phenomenal sermon. Praise the Lord for that. If you haven't gone yet, be encouraged. Uh, you'll be blessed and edified. All right. So, Ephesians chapter 5, beginning verse 22. Tonight, uh, today's message is called, How Shall We Then Walk? I named it that last week. This is a continuation with that. Christian marital roles. How shall we then walk Christian marital roles? I uh, apologize that I did not give you verses 15 to 21 last week. I have that. I didn't, I didn't forget that. I'm going to table that and probably attach that to next week's sermon. Because discussing marital roles will take a whole 40 minutes today. So 15 to 21, you got shortchanged. You need to hold me to that. And I will get that text to you. Okay? I apologize. Um, wrapping up. Um, a clarification from last week. I do want to make a couple comments uh, based on what I preached last week. Uh, number one, two comments real quick regarding last week. Please hear me in context. You guys hear me? Hear me in context. Uh, I was teaching against the world's false definition of love. What I called several times in my message the compassion movement or the niceness movement. Remember I said that? Um, I never denied, nor would I ever deny, that love is kind. 1 Corinthians 13 says, love is patient, love is kind. And in fact, I, I never actually uttered those words, that love is not kind. Um, I really listened to the whole message. Uh, and I, I even pointed to, in the message, and I highlighted, when I started, the end of Ephesians 4, which says, remember, be kind, be compassionate. I told you it was that Greek word meaning guts or bowels, the word for compassion. Remember that? Um, so I mentioned that. I, I highlighted that. I never said last week, go out and kick a puppy. Okay. I never said that, or be mean to people, or be mean to family members. Anyone who knows me knows that is not how I live. Uh, that is not what I teach. Of course, Christ was kind. Of course. I even said at one point, I emphasized, love is self-sacrificial. What is self-sacrificial is kind and compassion. So please hear me in context. I was saying love is not reduced to simply, love is not simply be kind. That's false teaching. That is contra-biblical teaching in the world. That's bumper sticker culture. Love just means be kind. To be sure, kindness and compassion certainly are entailments of love. They are aspects of love. But love is not merely compassion as a singular expression. Do you understand? Love is much more multifaceted. It is broader than the world's cheap imitation. And in fact, it is better defined, according to Ephesians 5, as two things which I told you last week, which we'll see again in the text today. Love is self-sacrificial service, and it is holiness, or it is purity before God. That's what love is, self-sacrifice and holiness. Which is why I said it last week, and I'll say it again, hear me in context. Love is not be compassionate, be kind. That's not it. 
So, and in case you got confused, because 1 Corinthians 13 says love is patient, love is kind. Remember, Paul says you are not justified by what? Works. You are justified by faith. You see, you're, you're not justified by works, but by faith. And then James says, so you see that a man is not justified only by what? Faith, but also by his works. The Bible sounds like it's saying two different things. They're not at all. Paul and James agree. You have to listen in context. So that's what I meant last week. Number two, when I exhorted parents to dump social media, um, it was two things. Number one, it was illustrative. I meant it as illustrative. It was an example. It was a warning of worldly influence, social media. And number two, it was intended to empower you or embolden you as parents or encourage you and give you biblical warrant to take drastic steps where necessary for the sake of your home. But it was not a direct command. Don't mistake that. For what I said, I wouldn't suppose to do that, to give you arbitrary direct commands. Please again, hear me in the context of my life and ministry. I have social media. (laughs) You can make whatever decision you want. But it was intended to help parents who might be struggling or who want further growth in their family to eliminate worldliness. That was my point. It was to empower you. But it was certainly not to embarrass parents if their kids have social media, or uh, it wasn't intended to give kids a reason to accuse their parents if you have social media. We are entitled to Christian liberty. I've always preached that. I will continue to always preach that. But here's what I was saying last week. Don't use Christian liberty as an excuse to participate with the world. 1 Peter 3, 1 Corinthians 6 to 7. Does that make sense? Hear me in context, folks. And in, the, and, and the length and breadth of my, my ministry here, okay? All right, good. So, um, introduction to our next section. In, in context, again, in this practical section of Ephesians, we have learned through several imperatives um, with the same verb and yet different descriptions. So, the same command. He keeps saying, walk, walk. So, in chapter 4, he says, walk worthy. And then he says, walk not in the mind's futility. Then he says, walk in love, last week, chapter 5. Then he says, walk in light, uh, verse 7 and 8 of chapter 5. And then he says in verse 15, walk in careful wisdom, not as unwise. And we see his instruction and his descriptions to war against the empty speech of the culture, verse 6. Do not listen to the vain instruction. And so now we come to the issue of the family in 22. And it is connected grammatically to the previous section by a series of participles. And this is very important. Okay, those are like action verbs. They're verbs. Um, But it's important because he sets a main command, a main imperative, leading into the next section. And that imperative occurs in verse 18. If you look at 518, this is contextually leading us into 22. Um, And do not get drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. That's the overarching grammatical command. Then the rest are participles. These are ing verbs. What does that mean, be filled with the Spirit? Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing, making melody with the heart, with your heart to the Lord. Giving thanks always for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God and the Father, submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. And then we hit 22. Women to their own husbands as to the Lord. So be filled with the Spirit, and entailed in that is all these verbs, speaking to one another in hymns, singing, making melody, giving thanks, submitting to one another in the fear of Christ, and then wives to their own husbands. So marital submission, here's my point grammatically, is a direct entailment of being Spirit-filled. 
And it's in a descending cadence of participles where it's narrowing. So there is no mutual submission grammatically. That's what a lot of liberal uh, interpreters will do with this text. Oh, verse 21 says mutual submission, submit, submit to one another in the fear of Christ. That's grammatically wrong. It's funneling down. He's narrowing uh, with, with a descending cadence of participles who he's talking to, moving from the church down to the home, all of you speaking in hymns, all of you singing, thanking, submitting, and now also narrower wives you submit to your husbands. So our question this morning, how ought the Christian household to conduct itself? And here's our thesis. So here's our main point today. Wives submit in everything. Which submission is reverence to your head, the husband? And husbands love your wives, which love is selfless and purifying. So I want to note this is carrying the exact same theme that we saw last week when Paul defined love in verse 2 and following as he defined love as this, self-sacrifice and purity or holiness. Remember, he said, walk in love in chapter 5, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up, an offering to God, that's sacrifice and pure devotion. And then it follows, uh, let there be no uncleanness among you, be pure. So it's the same type of thinking. Let's read Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 22. The women are wives to their own husbands as to the Lord, verse 23. But husband, but, uh, because the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, himself the Savior of the body. But as the church submits to Christ, thus in the same way, likewise, in the same manner, also wives to their husbands and everything. Verse 25, the husbands love your wives, just as also Christ loved the church and himself gave himself up for her in order that he might sanctify her, make her holy, having cleansed her with the washing of the water in the word in order that he might present to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or uh, any other such thing, but in order that the church, she might be holy and without blemish. Verse 28, thus, it is necessary also husbands to love their own wives as their own bodies. The one loving his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, his own body, but feeds and nourishes it, just as also Christ the church, because members we are of his body. Because of this, a man will leave his father and his mother, and will be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Now this mystery is great, but I speak to Christ and to the church. Nevertheless, yet also you, one by one, each of you, his own wife, let him love thus as himself, and the wife, in order that she might fear, that's what it says. In order that she might revere, fear the husband. Amen. All right. So, uh, number one, wives, here's your first point. Wives submit unequivocally. Wives submit unequivocally. Submit, it says, as to the Lord. So what does that mean? Does it mean anything but full submission, full obedience? And Paul expounds to set aside any protestations or conditional thinking. A conditional thinking or a protest would be this. Here would be conditional thinking. Submit, except in the case of, fill in the blank. 
He expounds on this to set all that aside. I want to emphasize here the unconditional nature of the command, because when we condition or when we soften God's commands, we get into trouble. The husband is your head, wives, just as Christ is of the church. In the same way, our minds should go right back to Ephesians 1.22 and our second lesson. When we read the theological proposition, and here now are some of the implications of our theology from the first three chapters. Uh, Ephesians 1.22, our minds should go back to this, that God gave him Jesus, resurrected, ascended, seated, and ruling with all authorities in subjection to him. God gave Jesus head over all to the church, which is his body. Ladies, there is no equivocation. There is no caveat. There is no conditional aspect to this. There is no qualifier. In fact, there is as much condition and qualifier to this as there is to Christ's headship over the church as in none. His headship, and by extension, the husband's headship in the home, listen, is absolute, unchallenged, and without caveat. And there's no area of the home where it does not touch. Now, this is obviously, hear me in context, under Christ's authority and under the authority of God's word. This is a delegated authority to husbands. So do not mistake what I just said for unaccountable headship, for arbitrary, lawless, abusive tyranny outside of God's law. That's not what I said. I said it's delegated authority, but it is authority. So to clarify, Paul describes it even further. Just just as the church submits to Christ, thus also wives to their husbands in everything, it says. Now, do we understand how much the church submits to Christ? Do we understand that? Christ is God and King. Literally, there is no bounds, there's no limit to his authority, to our submission, and there is no limit, no circumscription to his authority over us. There's no area where we claim we have authority outside from under Christ's jurisdiction, no place of autonomy out of his authority to claim for ourselves. The notion would be absurd, correct? The notion would be entirely counterintuitive to what we know to be the nature of God and the absolute allegiance owed to God. Just as the church submits to Christ, thus likewise in the same way, wives to the husbands in everything. Listen, dear church, that means without exception. Submission without exception. And further, submit does mean, listen, submit does mean obey. We hear sometimes that submit doesn't mean obey. We hate using submit, but even more we hate using the word obey. Nevertheless, obey is the correct biblical language. Scripture even describes a godly wife as calling her husband master. Now, dear church, and particularly my sisters, as I just said that, please be at rest, be calm. There is nothing here to fear. Before we get nervous here and give way to fear and say, Serge, this is just too much, let's compare this with another text. 1 Peter 3, beginning in verse 1. I'm going to read from the New King James Version. You could turn there if you want. I'm just going to keep going for time's sake. You can just listen. Wives, likewise, it says, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they're disobedient husbands, They, without a word, may be won by the conduct of their wives when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear, reverence. 
Do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair and wearing gold or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. For in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, Greek, the Greek word is kurios, the same word we use for Jesus, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. That's what the passage ends. Don't be afraid with any terror. NASB says, without being frightened by any fear. NIV, NIV I really like, says, um, do not give way to fear. Women, entrust yourselves to God's command. Submit in everything, obey, reverence your husband, and do not give way to fear. The flesh of woman, I understand, recoils and resists and rebels against this. We know that. That's part of the curse, Genesis 3.16. Your desire will be for his authority. Paraphrase. Uh, But Scripture is saying to the daughters of Christ, and Scripture is encouraging them, and trust yourself to God, to his commands. Do his commands. They are good. They are for your welfare, and they are not burdensome. And do not fear or listen to the lies like who did? Who listened to the lies in the garden? Eve. Don't don't listen to the serpent, ladies. Don't listen to the lies that this will come to harm, come to your harm if you obey God. It It will be to your certain blessing if you submit and obey and reverence your husbands. Uh, Notice the ending in verse 33 at the end of the passage. It says this, in order that wives might reverence or fear their husbands. Uh, Respect is a fine word. People translate it respect. Um, It is the verb for fear in the Greek. And the King James Version and others translate it, see to it that wives reverence their husbands. Now, this is a command, uh, not because men want this necessarily. That's not why the command's in there, because men want respect. This is a command not because men want it, or not because men deserve fearful subjection and reverence from their wives. That's not why it's in here. But because, as I said, this is uh, precisely the point at which women will tend to disobey in the flesh. That's why the passage ends with, wives, reverence your husbands, because I'll say it again, this is precisely the point at which women will tend to disobey in the flesh. It's not because man wants the respect. It's not because he deserves it. It's because it's the place where women will tend to stumble. So Paul is reminding them, you must reverence your husband. Now, why is this even in here, the structural? Let me give you three reasons for why this structure is in marriage in God's creation. Number one, one reason is this adorns the gospel. A submissive wife adorns the gospel. Listen, Christianity, despite what the culture tells you, liberates women. Come next week, Lord willing, and we'll talk about the grounding of equal rights and equality, what we call civil rights, the grounding of man's value, man by man, in God's created order. The grounding for that is found in Ephesians and elsewhere in the New Testament and throughout the Bible, but come next week for that. But Christianity liberates women and gives them equal footing and status which they heretofore never had in the world. I know I do that with my voice. I get excited. I'm not yelling. 
I never do. I'm not doing that. I'm just excited, okay? I'm excited. Heretofore, prior to this, women were never treated this way. Christianity liberates women. Christianity gives women co-dominion, Genesis 1. And we preached that in Cambodia. It was awesome. Ladies, you have co-dominion over creation. Love that. Chapter 1, before the fall. Husbands are commanded to love them sacrificially, Ephesians 5. You belong to your body, your husband's body belongs to you. You have ownership over your husband's body, 1 Corinthians 7. 1 Peter 3, you are co-heirs in the kingdom. Christianity exalts woman. But here's the point. May this freedom not be a license for rebellion and so tarnish the reputation of the faith. Listen, as though Christianity is a religion before the world's eyes that empowers women to overthrow their husbands and their husbands' authority. And so then Christianity will be perceived as a religion of subversion and rebellion and disorder and chaos and no authority. We don't want that, is Paul's point. Peter says the same thing to all Christians regarding orderly submission to government in 1 Peter chapter 2. Live as free people, but don't use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. So, one reason women are to submit is it adorns the gospel. It shows that when women are liberated, they're still orderly in God's created order. Number two, it conforms to God's created order. It is orderly to submit. Genesis 2, woman was made, second, as a suitable helper. Leader and follower is built into creation. Leader, follower is built into creation. It's, it's the very nature of things. Number three, uh, it reflects Christ and the church. Obviously, he makes that point at the end of chapter five. The overall theological purpose, now that we know and have seen the full mystery revealed, the overall theological purpose for marriage is to reflect Christ and the church in the world. So that's why you submit. Adorns the gospel, conforms to created order, reflects Christ and the church. Now, for those reticent to teach on women's submission and obedience or to hear this, Uh, Let me encourage the women again. And I'm looking at guys, but I'm trying to look at some of the ladies in here, okay? Uh, We sell women short as if they are too immature to hear clear teaching. We sell them short as though they can't handle it. Men are able, I suppose, to hear clear teaching. But women can, according to this type of thinking. Don't talk about submission and obedience. The ladies will. According to this thinking, women are nothing more than immature. I'm being rhetorical. Hear me in context. Okay. According to this thinking, don't, don't go too heavy on the submission, the obedience, the reverence, your husbands. According to this thinking, women are nothing more than immature, temperamental balls of anger and pride with immeasurably short fuses just waiting to burst into flames. At the first inclination of sound biblical teaching, the minute you teach them mature doctrine to submit and obey, they will assault you because they are so immature. So beware and tread lightly. I don't think so at all. I'm being rhetorical. I think our women are very mature. And I think they're hungry for clear biblical teaching, just like the men. And so we ought to teach. And not to apologize to our ladies. Are they not able to handle it? Men, can our women handle it? Of course they can. Ladies, can you ha- of course you can handle clear biblical. That's why you're here. At a good church that preaches the word, of course they can handle it. In fact, if we leaders and pastors and husbands fail to teach our wives the doctrine of submission and obedience for whatever reason, whether it's fear, cowardliness, misguided pretense of niceness, remember I talked about that last week? Well, it's mean to teach that. It's not loving. 
You define love wrong, okay? But if we neglect this because of a pretense of being loving or a pretense of softness or gentleness or, here's one, she's too righteous. She doesn't need to hear it. Guys, we do a disservice to our women and we fail to help them. It says in Ephesians 5, we'll get to it, to wash them with the water of the word, it says in verse 26. We fail to help them. We fail to help them at the exact and precise point of their greatest carnal weakness. Since their flesh tempts them to rebel, that is their tendency in the flesh by nature, we withhold from our ladies the most important point of Scripture to help them fight the flesh in the very area where they indeed struggle the most. What a failure of leadership. And in fact, how unloving may it never be that we fail to teach and instruct our women on this very important issue. Indeed, it would be like saying, it'd be like saying this, a pastor or a wife can't talk to her husband about lust. It's too sensitive. It's too challenging. He'll get upset. And so the man is deprived at his greatest point of desperate need where his flesh hits him hardest and hits him the most. He's deprived of life-saving, sanctifying teaching. We cannot do that to our men and we cannot do that to our women. There's only two reasons not to teach the doctrine of submission. Either one, cowardliness, or two, your wife does not sin and she's too perfect to need to hear it. Which if you say that, you have impoverished theology. No offense to the wives. But we're all sinners, and we all need God's word. So application, two quick applications, and then we'll get over to the men, and I think we're okay on time. All right, two quick applications. Number one, ladies, the husband, this is a little application, the life, church life, every part of life. The husband is the spokesman for the home. Can I repeat that? The husband is the spokesman for the home. Let him lead, be quiet, be meek, and entrust yourself to your husband, the spokesman. If you're upset about something, church, life, whatever, the husband is the spokesman for the house. And if your husband says, we've settled it here, that's enough. We don't need to send emails. I'm the spokesman. We've settled it. Quiet yourself. And if something needs to be said, who's going to say it? I'm looking for yeah, the husband. Because the husband is the spokesman for the home. 1 Corinthians 14, 1 Timothy 2. And number two, it, it, ladies, let me encourage you. It doesn't matter your home situation. It's never hopeless because God's word provides a way out by his commands and by our obedience. Sadly, I hear this frequently. I can't go to my husband. He can't speak for me. He can't represent me or my home. I have to do it my own way. No, you are giving way to fear and you're sidestepping God's command. Listen, your husband might be the most difficult man on earth to live with. Submit. That's your lot. Even to the point of suffering, God will honor your obedience. I am calling you, ladies, to faith. Is this not faith? Entrusting yourself to Christ. Remember, this is part of what we learned from Ephesians, and hopefully before the end of our semester here, I'll be able to talk about this more, uh, especially Ephesians 2 chapter 1 into 2, resurrection power. This is what we learned from our theology. There is no sin situation or damage beyond his power and word and ability to address. The experience of scripture can reach and inform every experience of man in his sin because God's word is sufficient and Christ has risen and reigns. You can submit and endure to your husband's authority. Amen? Amen. All right, now men. Men love unconditionally. So women... Women submit unequivocally. Men love unconditionally. Men, love your wives, or we learned at the beginning of chapter 5, walk in love. 
right? That, that started all the way back at the beginning of chapter 5. Walk in love. Walk worthy. Walk not as unwise. Not like the world and futility of your mind. Walk in love. Walk in light. Walk carefully with wisdom. Love your wives. Here again we see love defined with the same Greek word just as. So walk in love just as. It said in the beginning of chapter 5. Walk in love just as Christ gave himself up. Okay, and then it says, that's the beginning of chapter 5, and then later in chapter 5, talking to husbands, it says, love your wives just as Christ, love the church, and it uses the same verb. Okay, let me just point it out. Chapter 5, verse 2, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up, and then if you jump over to uh, chapter 5, verse uh, 25, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up. Same verb, same analogy that's being drawn. Christ loved and gave himself up in order to sanctify. There's the purity theme again. Having cleansed with the word to present glorious without stain, wrinkle, or any impurity, without blemish. But now it is, here it is. He says to present the church holy. So again, love is defined the same as in chapter 5, verse 2. And thereafter, and what I said last week, two prongs to it. Listen, I said love is, again, hear me in context, it's not be nice, the compassion movement, that very superficial, shallow reductionist view. It's just not hurting feelings. That's not what love is. Love is self-sacrificial. Love is selflessness. Love is sacrificial selflessness. And love is holiness. Two things. Love is sacrificial service. Self. I'm saying too many words at once. Love is, there's too many words Love is sacrificial. Let's leave it at that. Okay? Yes, selfless. It's service. Those, all those words are synonyms. It's sacrificial. Love is sacrificial. And love is holiness. There's not a word here in chapter 5 to the husbands on niceness or worldly compassion in the way the world says. Okay? Remember context. Uh, like avoid hurting feelings. That, that's not in there. It is a Christ-conforming love. It is a Christ-conforming attribute and action. Paul continues by using the care for his body analogy from verses 28 to 32. This is an extension of the sacrifice part of love, the selfless sacrifice. Provide for your wife and everything because she is your body. Genesis chapter 2, he references that. Provide for her in everything. Sacrifice in every way for her. So we see provision, okay, I'm going with this two-pronged theme here, guys. We see provision, that's the service, that's the sacrifice, that's the selflessness, that's the uh, physical care. Serve your wife, sacrifice, give of yourself for your wife. We see that, and we see sanctification, which is spiritual headship. Make her more holy, present her to Christ holy. So let's look at both of those. Number one, physical provision. He says, feed uh, her just like your own body. Care for her, nourish her just like your own body. In fact, a man does not hate his own body. Just as Christ does these things for the church and provides you that, you do that. So husbands, you cannot scorn your wife, but you cherish her. You cherish her. Sacrificial, selfless service. She goes on a pedestal. We've got this backwards. And it was a joy when we all got to teach this to the Cambodian women. The world's got this backwards. You cherish your wife. She goes on a pedestal. She is the crown. Husbands, can you listen to me? Husbands, your wife is the crowning jewel of your life. Do you realize that? She is the crowning jewel of your life. See the creation account. 
She was made last and altogether wonderful. The women have all the priority in the home. Who has priority in your home? It's got to be the women. If you've got daughters, it is your wives and your daughters. You are bondservants to your wives and your daughters. What did Christ become for us? He became a man, a servant, obedient even to death. That's love. This is why we do nice things to our wives. And we treat them well and wonderfully because God has so graced us. Do you realize we are to be like the father to us? We are to be that to our wives? Like the father lavishly pours out his love and blessing on us? We've got to lavish our wives with love. Just as Christ is to us, we are Christ to them. You are one with your wife. She is you. Remember how Christ is compared to us in Ephesians 1. Notice that Paul here calls the church glorious to present her to himself a glorious church. Let us see our wives in this way, husbands, with an obsessive love, an obsessive love. No caveats or condition. Her appearance, her temperament, her age, her submissiveness, none of that matters. You love her unconditionally with an undying love. That's selfless sacrifice. That is provision. That's caring for her. And number two, spiritual sanctification. That's part of your love. Presenting, it says, that Jesus would present the church to himself uh, without spot, without blemish, without wrinkle, holy, blameless, pure, washed by the water of the word. Uh, So we are presenting our wives to God. Do you realize that your wife and your family is a stewardship? The wife is to be cleansed with the water of the word. That's wherein lies our headship and our leadership and our love is to wash them with the word. Forgo your privileges, man. Forgo your liberties, your prerogatives for the sake of your family and those under your stewardship. As I referenced already, Christ in Philippians chapter 2 gave up everything. He had, did Christ have claim to the throne? Yes. But he considered it as though it was not something to be grasped, it says, something for him to cling to. But he let go of his position and took on the form of a servant, a man, and became obedient even to death on the cross. You see that? Husbands, you have claim to things. But that's not what you're called. You're called to let go of that, to be a servant to your family. You must spiritually lead and feed your wife. You are the house pastor. Instruction is what you need to give. Abstinence from worldliness, what we talked about last week. You need to lead family worship. You need to bring reproval and correction. You need to bring exemplary living. Husbands, ask yourselves this. Will your wife be better or worse? Will your wife be better or worse when she meets Christ for having lived her life with you? Will your wife have great heavenly reward because of you or in spite of you? And I want to clarify again, because when we hear love, we're so enculturated by the world. This love, again, is not the capitulating, quote, pick up household vacuuming type of love. Proverbs 31, that's her place. Let her do that. Let her be domestic. This is not the make sure she has enough flowers type of love. This is not the meet her felt needs type of love. That's, that's not this. Valentine's Day presents are fine. But that's not what this is teaching men and women. This is not teaching you to find out and speak her love language. 
That's worse than bad Bible. That's really bad teaching. Okay, go back to verse 6. You are being deceived by books, even in the church, with vain and empty words. You're being deceived by empty words. That is not love to find out and speak someone's love language. What this love is, it is spiritual headship love, purifying. And it is physical sacrifice love, work, devotion, putting her welfare first. Now, why is this the command for husbands to love? Well, the call of a true leader is to cherish, because I answered before, why are wives called to submit? Okay, now I'm answering why are men called to love unconditionally? Listen, the call of a true leader is to cherish and to exalt, uplift, and care for, and bless. You bless the greater to the lesser. You see that in terms of power. God blesses us immensely. And so we are called as leaders to bless them immensely, immeasurably. And yet I want to give a warning. This is man's greatest point of failure. As I spoke to the women, I'll speak to men. This is man's greatest point of failure. This is a command to do this, not because women want love or they deserve love most of all, but because this is precisely the point at which men will tend to disobey in the flesh. Men will tend to not love unconditionally. You have a couple ways that happens. One is the abuse of authority, lording it over the women. Genesis 3 warns of that, that you will rule over them. So there's an abuse of authority, or there's neglect. Adam's absence and failure to leave, lead Eve through that situation with the, with the serpent. That was neglect. And it doesn't matter how you might claim your wife might be disrespectful. You have to serve her and purify her unconditionally. So again, on the one end, number one, lazy self-indulgence is why we end up in a position of neglect, man. Let me say that again. Lazy self-indulgence, just living for ourselves, is why we end up in a position of neglect. We're neglecting our leadership because leadership takes sacrifice. It takes attention. It takes work. It takes getting off the couch. It takes shutting off the TV. Here, I can say something drastic like I did last week when understand me in context, like shut off the TV, throw out the TV, don't ever watch TV. Man, I didn't say don't ever watch TV. Don't quote me on that. I said it, but I didn't say that. That's not what I mean. I'm saying if that's what it takes, don't, don't ever watch TV. <laughs> if that's what it takes to lead your family, to love her unconditionally, your life does not belong to you. It belongs to her. It belongs to her. So don't be lazy. Get off the couch. Number two, men do not abuse. Men do not abuse. That's the other extreme. Do not lose your temper. You are dominant. You are bigger. No matter what the feminist move, uh, movement tells us, you are stronger. You yell louder. Don't do that. Control yourself by God's word, by his spirit, by his grace in you, man. Repent. Man, be warned. You are the dominant partner. You cannot abuse, which is profanity, and it is disgusting before God. It is a stench in his nostrils. God commissioned you, men, as his representative. How offensive to turn that commissioning into the opposite, to turn God-given sacrificial leadership and care into selfish abuse for your own gratification. Human history has been marked by one half of the population. Do you realize this? Human history has been marked by one half of the population permanently abusing the other. Men against women. Men, if you live this way, you have forfeited your divine charge to govern God's creation and the souls entrusted to you, and you have treated that charge with contempt, and you have disgraced God's name and your position, and God will avenge that sin. Do not be participants with it. Verse 6 and 7 in Ephesians 5. I suppose theologically that there will be heavy 
Perhaps, I said this to the girls in Cambodia, I suppose theologically that there will be heavy, perhaps some of the heaviest retribution meted out to men who have abused women all since the dawn of time. How many sexes are there, folks? There's two. And which one, since the beginning of the world, has dominated and abused and exploited the other? Man has done that to woman. God hears the cries of and advocates for the oppressed. Don't govern your house that way. All right, I want to give further clarification as we're wrapping up of the concluding verse. It says, men, love your wives as yourself, and women, reverence your husband. Okay, can we put our thinking caps on for one second? Stay with me. Okay? In light of this ending and what we talked about today, I push back a, a bit, or a lot, I push back on, sorry, Dad. My dad will talk to me after. Uh, on this idea, that book, Love and Respect, I push back on that. Um, and I, my dad is all deference and respect. He's used it, and many people have used it, and used it very profitably. But I push back, because what that, the premise there is that the verse is written because that's what the other wants the most. Have you heard that? Men want respect, women want love. I, I don't think so. Rather, I think it's written to give a command and warn against the way each one, husband and wife, is most likely to sin. It's written because of sin, not need. Reading the text as each one wants this most, so do it, is a faulty hermeneutic. I think it's a bad interpretive strategy. Stay with me, okay? Um, And by the way, I would challenge that anyway, who says that men want respect the most. I'm a dude, and I'll leave it there. Guys in marriage, I'll just leave it there. They want, never mind, okay? Talk about love languages. Talk about love language. Okay, never mind. I, forget it. it um, so let's just leave it there. <laughs> My point is I, I defy that interpretation in hermeneutical style. Uh, because it, here's why I defy that hermeneutic. It's subjective. It is a self-word reading of Scripture, self-oriented versus a corrective reading of Scripture. In other words, um, it's a subjective, subject-oriented, me-pleasing, me-pleasing way to read the text. Oh, women want love, so then give them love. Men want respect, so give them respect. No, that's a bad hermeneutic because uh, it's saying that Scripture speaks to what I need and what I want the most. No, it, it never does that. Scripture speaks to where we sin the most, and then it corrects the sin. Scripture is not a psychology manual or a book interested in meeting felt needs. And by the way, if you're like, why the discrepancy? It's such a minute point. Because this kind of reading, this subjective hermeneutic, is how you end up with the felt needs movement. Find out what your wife wants and give it to her. What? No. Find out what the Scripture says you should be as a man. And do that. Find out what you should be as a wife and do that. It feed, You end up with the felt needs movement. This kind of reading is where you end up with love language books, which is dangerous. That's an unhealthy orientation with how to meet the subject's needs and wants. It's an unhealthy obsession with me and with the self. An unhealthy orientation with how to meet the subject's needs and wants. I argue instead for this, for an objective reading of Scripture. Scripture is not beholden to the subject's desires, to the reader. It speaks as an external, listen, self-evident proposition. As such... The verse is speaking not for the subject's sake, not for the sake of the reader, but in authority over the reader, over the subject. And the verse is in here because the tendency to sin most lies in these two areas. That's why the ending verse is there. Wives tend to be insubordinate. You see that? So wives, respect. And husbands tend to abuse and neglect. So husbands, love. 
It's not so much what I want or what she wants or what he wants, but objectively, it's what the word says. You husbands or you wives will tend to sin in this area the most, so be warned and don't do it. Rather, walk in wisdom, back to verse 15, be filled with the Spirit, verse 18, the leading imperative for the whole section, and then live this way, verse 33, application. That's the correct rendering of the text. So, application is, folks, rid yourselves of marital tension. Wives sometimes expect something different from husbands, and so they define love wrong, then they say that he's not loving, and they call it toxic, and they justify insubordination. Define love the way the scriptures do. Wives be submissive. Husbands expect perfectly submissive wives that don't age. And, they, and, and they, husbands live selfishly, not sacrificially. And they neglect the family. And the family descends into chaos. And then they say the wife is rebellious and unpleasant. And they decide that they don't need to cherish and love. And that's wrong. We need to repent. Husbands, we love unconditionally. Wives, we submit unequivocally. Don't submit to your own exact point of weakness, but rather pray, reorient your thinking, repent, and pursue peace in your homes. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this time to be in your word and to study it. Pray that the wives and husbands are blessed, that they know I'm sharing this out of love. Help us to read scripture correctly, see where our weaknesses are, and allow the Bible to inform our lives and minds. We love you and give you praise. And we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, guys. Have a great day. Thank you.